In the picture I'm staring at, she is rail thin, at once fierce and fragile. Her eyes are spectral, as though already haunted by the tragedies to come. What you can't see in the photograph, though can't help but sense, is her armor-piercing intellect. She prowled the neon nights of Los Angeles and dimly lit rooms of San Francisco for her subjects, then fixed her insights like butterflies, word by perfect word. In her work, she revealed the molten and withering soul of California, but where she lived was a Malibu of the mind. She is the incomparable Joan Didion, and if someone more intimate hadn't already done it better than I ever could, I'd want to make a movie of her life. For Joan Didion, the center will not hold. We must thank her brilliant, multi-hyphenate nephew. Without further ado, I give you a conversation with director Griffin Dunn. Griffin, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. So glad to have you here. Well, thanks for having me. It's, I am, I'm a fan. Well, I am a, I'm a fan of your movie. I'm a fan of your acting. I'm a fan of your directing. I'm a fan of your whole extended wild clan. So um, it's, a, it's a delight to, 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 uh, to have you and have the chance to talk to you. Oh, well, thank you. So I figured we should probably begin with the words, which is which is probably where Joan would want us to begin. Um, and let's talk about the title and the, the selection of the title and how you came to that. Well, I, I, not easily. Um, I, I, I found um, the, the coming up with the right title one of the more um, challenging things, oddly. Um, um, the one thing I, I, I was, it was requested by Netflix for their algorithm and feed was to use Joan's name first, colon, whatever the title is. Um, that way the view, viewer can find it easier when they're uh, scrolling around and it will show up on their feed whether they want it to or not. Um, but, but we chose this because um, it's 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 a line from the Yeats poem. Um, Joan's first book of essays was called Slouching Towards Bethlehem, um, which was from the from the Yeats poem, and um, and it's about that that one sentence sort of summations is a summation of the period that she wrote about most in that in that in that uh, book of essays, which was really like the decline of the American family and the devastation of drugs and the, the um, ripping away the glamorousness of, of, of the hippie movement by focusing on the children who were runaways. Um, and it was a reference um, to the center not being able not holding in in American society, um, it was portentous. It's a it's a it's a fascinating choice, I think, because I mean, I think it's a, a perfect and beautiful and apt choice because 
even though like it is specific to that book, specific to that work and kind of, you know, and there's that wonderful moment in the film, which we'll get to shortly. I think it's also very evocative of kind of her entire writing life and career in, in, in a fundamental sense in terms of like she was so clear eyed about what the kind of prevailing winds were and prevailing mm. trends were and able to see it, but then sort of see, I don't know, I guess the like counterfactual opposition of it. And like that person, her, like every single sentence and is just rings with her unique perspective on the world. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. So, so how does this movie begin, right? I mean, you know, obviously as your aunt and sort of this defining figure in your life, I, I would imagine, you know, that begins with the amazing story of your one ball poking out at the, uh, which is which is just fantastic. Um, Another example of contrary ab- thinking, by the way. You in, know, indeed, but- indeed. Always, always, always the contrarian. But um like, how do you decide? Like, how do you decide to make the movie? Like, do, how much courting of Joan is in, is required? Because I'm sure she was. I'm sure she'd been approached countless times about it. And and like, tell us how this movie comes to sure. comes into the world. Uh, she had indeed been courted many times before, and I think that uh, she probably. Um, I, I think she thought their take was a little uh, uh, too fawning or too academic, um, and she just had absolutely no interest in it at all and and she's not um being on in front of the camera uh being asked uh questions uh over however long it takes to make a documentary i think she just didn't have the appetite for but in this case um she her uh her last book was called blue nights that um the way uh your magical thinking uh focused on the loss of John, her husband, John Gregory Dunn. Um, Blue Nights was somehow even more devastating because it was about the death of her daughter, my cousin, Quintana. And uh, when the book was ready for release, most most books uh, come with a, uh, they make a video um, for to promote the book of some kind of little short thing, short sort of film. And uh, and Simon and Schuster wanted to do that for her. Um, and I don't know if you've ever seen them, but across the board, they're all quite cheesy. Right. Um, the, the, the cheesy, obvious, like superficial version of it. Right. I, I, yeah. I can imagine. Yeah, they're, and, and, and you just see the author just selling the shit out of themselves. And uh, it's uncomfortable for everyone. But, so Joan... Joan um, asked the publishers to ask me if I would make a maker video and um having looked and seen what i just described i I said well i I need more money than you obviously are paying for these other ones and they they stepped up and sonny maida um a close friend of joan and since passed away a fascinating man himself he pretty much gave me carte blanche and so our our take was to use um her prose, her reading in her apartment and put imagery to these words and take, uh, it, it was uh, it was a film that ran about 30 minutes tops. We would take Joan to Central Park, to the fountain at Central Park. We would go to the Botanical Garden. We would go to St. John's um, Cathedral. Um, 
and even though the subject of the um, of the book um, and the video I was making was 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 devastating and about devastating loss and guilt as a mother, we had a ridiculously good time making it. Um, you know, Joan had uh, you know in her childhood she she uh, had thoughts of maybe being an actress, and uh, we. Um, and we had a really great time. She was with, you know, and the crew could not believe they were riding around in a van with Joan Didion and and having lunch. And so anyway, we finished the movie, good short. Um, Sonny Maida and the rest of the marketing people, they all loved it. And that's when I had to really dig deep and ask if we can go on to the second act, which would be a feature length film about her. And uh, I was quite nervous. Um, I actually expected a no. Um, and I said, well, what do you think, you know, of, about doing a, a feature of, of, of your life, Joan? And she goes, huh. Uh, yeah, okay. And that was the <laughs> end of it. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, I was off and running. Um, so it's, it's essentially you hijacked an infomercial and, and, and sort of exactly. you know, bamboozled them into like turning it into a film. And then once you, you, it was already going, you, 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 you sort of then, then kind of it, it, it was almost a, a partially a fait accompli. And then it was just a question of sort of nudging her fully into the, in, into the feature film version. Exactly. She knew just what she would be in for and, and, and she, she enjoyed it. And, and um, so we, I also had, I also had the film, so images from the, um, from the shoot to use for a, uh, sizzle reel, um, and that, that we put together and it, it was an interview with me talking about John and Joan and Quintana and her writing, um, that, uh, we put together to go on, um, uh, what's the one that raises all the money? Um, you, uh, just having a blank moment, but yeah, it's a very famous, uh, thing. You ask for money and you show it and it's like a GoFundMe, but it, it was a right, different one. Right, right, right. So essentially some sort of like pitch forum where you're, where you're, where you're taking that reel out and, 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 exactly. and putting it in front of potential buyers. And, and I knew no matter how much money they gave us. Oh, the community of fans, um, it would never be enough to actually make the movie. But what happened was what my uh, co-producer and cousin Annabelle done happened was exactly what we hoped was that the real beat went viral. I mean, crazy right. viral. Um, and I mean, you know, people from Japan and I mean, all over the world. It was it was unbelievable. We were just inundated. Fascination, essentially cultural fascination. Yes, and and you know, quite honestly, we had um, we had started at HBO with just a development deal, um, which did not go forward, obviously. And when we went it to other places, um, they turned it down, thinking it would just be a. Uh, we hadn't made the sizzle reel at this point, and thinking that it would just be a you know one of those PBS biographies about a writer. And uh, but when the sizzle reel came out, all the people that passed came roaring back. Mm -hmm. And um, and and Netflix was the most aggressive. Uh, that's how I got the money that this film deserved. 
So, okay, so from that, from the sizzle reel and the pitch, and the, which sort of inadvertently becomes, in a sense, the, like, pitch to Netflix and, and the other buyers and whatever, and Netflix joins joins the circus, so to speak. Yep. How clearly mapped out is your plan at that point? Like, talk about the elements that you're working with, right? Because you've got the books, you've got her potentially reading them, you've got mm-hmm. your personal story. Like, how clear is the vision and the plan of what the final film will be, and how do you present that vision? Uh, uh, I, I didn't have, a, like, a structural plan, because, you know, that always is, is in flux um, until you you know what it is when after you shot most of everything. But I did know that um, that I would continue with the device of Joan reading and images. Um, and I did know that I would, it would be very heavily reliant on archival footage that I wanted to find that would depict the, um, the time periods that we were writing about from, that she was writing about from various, you know, from the, um, slouching years. And, and then later the, you know, the Donald Trump footage uh, of, of wanting the death penalty for the Central Park Five, using media and, and images that um, the various cinematographers I used in the, in the thing that we would, that we would find um, that, you know, supported the pros. Um, and I knew that I would be talking to, uh, to people in her life who, were her close friends, um, like Calvin Trilling, who was the, one of the first, one of her earliest friends who was still alive. Um, and uh, so I, I would have an, a personal approach and then I would have kind of more of a, um, a literary- Third person observation. Yeah, third, third, yeah, third that, person, that's third Hill party Nalls. interviews. And then I talked to, to her uh, book agent, and I talked to family members who knew John and Joan and Quintana. That, that's my my cousin Tony Dunn, who's who's speaking, who's um, you know who who lost his wife, um, and I think spoke very eloquently about grief. Beautiful. Um, so, uh, so it was you know a, a work in progress, and I'd have a new idea of who to talk to. I got um, uh, one of the people I talked to that didn't end up. There were several people I talked to that didn't end up in the movie through no fault of their own. But like Jan Wenner, um, there's a, 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 a kind of brilliant uh, uh, fashion, a bit of an icon herself called Phoebe Philo, um, mm-hmm. and so we had a whole section about style, and it just felt you know kind of superfluous in, in some way or another. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so sometimes I do interviews. Um, there were several people that, that once I was finding the structure and the tone, I, I always knew the tone too. I wanted the tone to always reflect the time. And I would do that through music and through the archival, mm-hmm. but I wanted the sixties to feel like the sixties, the jagged, uh, the jaggedness of it. And, and, um, and then the sort of like really hip sixties, seventies, uh, LA glamour. And, uh, you know, and with, uh, with the doors and then, but, but as the location, as she moved, um, so New York would feel very, very fifties. And then she would move, leave New York and then Los Angeles, Franklin drive, very seedy Hollywood section. And then that would have that tone. And then it would be the beach. And then, 
the scene on Trancas Beach. And so each, I, I followed the geography of mm-hmm. her so to, to let it determine tone. Exactly. So, so drill into tone a little bit, because to me, that's kind of one of, if not the most important, uh, certainly one of them, jobs of the director, which is kind of being a purveyor of tone and defining it, because it's that ineffable, you know, nonverbal um, vibe thing that's so determinative to how audiences take in a, a story or a film. And talk about what distinguishes doing it in a doc from, say, doing it in a feature and, and sort of how you find tone. Yeah, and I totally agree with you about tone. If you don't have tone and and and, uh, and it's not, like, really specific and you're not feeling it, um, your, your doc is going to fall short. And I had, um, I guess I, I feel, I feel tone um, by, by the cultural things I've witnessed, by the time periods of the, of movies that were made, they, they, they have their own tone. If they were made in the fifties, that just has a very particular feel. And, and then the New York scene in the fifties and the, you know, in the in the literary world, the world of vogue of young ladies, you know, uh, 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 you know, with white gloves, uh, wanting to be professionals and going to the Vogue building, and 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 you know, I I, I could get that across with um, talking to um, you know one of the surviving people at, at Vogue who was there when John was there, uh, who could give me set the tone by talking about the 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 etiquette of what it was like to be a young professional at the beginning of your career, uh, woman, um, you know, in the fifties. And, uh, and then I wanted to switch the tone for the, for the time period and the, and, and the location. And, uh, you know, my memory, uh, I was, you know, a a teenager throughout the, um, sixties, but I grew up in Los Angeles and, and a very heady, environment. John and Joan from the earliest age always included me in their parties. Uh, the party that she talked about that Janis Joplin was at, that Tom Wolfe, I was there. These sound like the hippest parties in history, by the way. like They were the hippest parties that ever lived. Yeah. Yeah. So I, 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 I mean, I was unabashedly idolized. I was also the only sober person in right. the room. <laughs> so I remember everything. Those, those, So that already has a tone because I lived it. I knew just what that should look like and what that should feel like. I I found my tone either through personal experience or through kind of, uh, you know, I I remember Central Park Five. I remember that Mm -hmm. vividly. I remember what New York was like then. It was very different than the New York I'm looking out my window at. Um, And there were race riots. There were... were, um, you know, there was there was a huge drug abuse and you'd step on the streets of New York and crack files would break under your under your shoes. Um, you know, that's a tone in itself. Um, well, it's interesting what you're articulating is it's a couple of different things that you're using, right, which is. On one sense, it's your sort of vivid personal memories and your your almost like your sense memories of what these times, places, eras, people were like. And then on the other, it's also the kind of cultural references and milieu. You know, Hollywood is is kind of 
broadcasting in some sense, like the vibe of the day in, in yeah. some way or another. And, and I was very struck by, um, you know, the interesting kind of conflicted relationship to Hollywood, um, you know, that, that Joan had in, in, in the sense that, and, and I think I'm sure was defining of, of your experience, you know, in, in, in your kind of extended clan. But like, talk about that, because on the one hand, there is the like, the romance and the glamour. And as I'm hearing that, I'm thinking like, fuck, please beam me to that party. It sounds like the <laughs> coolest thing ever. And then, you know, cut to that sort of astonishing moment, which I want to talk about in detail, where she's talking about, you know, the interview with the five-year-old on acid with white lipstick and, and like the cognitive dissonance of kind of the glamour and the horror of it. And, and, and I thought you navigated that beautifully and because it so seems to be emblematic of what her experience of, of Hollywood was. I mean, Hollywood was at a, a very interesting time of the filmmakers uh, like Hal Ashby and Martin Scorsese and, and Warren Beatty. And, you know, they were making, they were setting the, uh, the real golden years in, in filmmaking that hadn't been seen with such autonomy um, since the thirties. And, you know, the studios were run by younger people. Um, and uh, so there was a, there was that kind of filmmaking. And, but there was also all the older filmmakers that were just on their way out. There were dinosaurs, the Henry Hathaways, mm -hmm. sadly, Billy Wilder. The times had changed. The times had changed. Yeah. The times changed. The country's changed. And, and there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of um, uh, Vietnam and race and the, the country's just in, in flux. The center's not holding. But she, um, but she also, those filmmakers I mentioned, and the few writers in Los Angeles at that time, you know, Eve Babbitts, and there was a, a sort of uh, counterculture going on that was, you know, very, um, I was just very, very hip of, you know, the music and, and, and uh, uh, movies, you know, the worlds overlapped. So there was the creativity side, but what also fascinated her about Hollywood was, was the deal-making um and the cynicism of of how deals are made there the the the, the like color and, and people and swirl and hustle that was all around them um you know in which they both sort of uh participated and observed i think that was so beautifully rendered in the film and so beautifully rendered in her prose um, uh, cut to like, I want to go to that moment because I go, think yeah, in a way, and I'm sure you've talked about it a lot, but like when you get to that, you know, her just, you know, talking about the hate and kind of the hate Ashbury and, 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 and you know, <clears throat> using her bloodhound skills to kind of, you know, navigate to this child in a room and you ask her, you know, what is that moment like when you're suddenly in the room with this kid and I'm curious what was in your head as you're asking the question and there's that long dramatic pause before she answers the question and what's that moment like when you're sort of shooting that when you're shooting that scene kind of because it's the evocation in some sense of what her experience was talk about your experience doing that and what you expected to come out of her mouth the child that she was interviewing well I, by the way that was the very first essay of hers I ever read 
But that image just knocked me off my adolescent feet. And um, so I knew, I knew I was going to um, ask about that long before, I, you know, shooting even began. And that, that child happened to be the same age as her daughter, Quintana. And, you know, talk about the dichotomy of, you know, how she sees things in two ways. Um, here she's watching in the hate, watching runaway children, um, you know, running barefoot and, you know, uh, uh, you know, homeless. Um, and at home, she's left at home in Los Angeles, um, a five-year-old, so that she can write about this. So I asked her, you know, what was it like, as you said, you know, to see the little kid on acid. And she goes, well, it was, and I see her searching for it. And I think I'm going to be disappointed in this answer. I, 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 <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I think she's going to go down, you know, the devastation. I'm a mother and I, well, you know, it, it's so um, disturbing if you're a mother to see such a thing and the, the cruelty of these parents. What I, I thought she'd go down that road. And her hands are kind of going up. She's trying to grab the words out of the air. She goes, it was gold. First thought out of my head was, now this is gold. Yep, yep, I knew it. Uh, I just, I knew the moment, the moment I heard it, I went, I, I, I have goosebumps saying it now. I just knew it. And and it's, it's, it's such a defining moment that, you know, um, that organically uh, shows character. Um, and that's very, that's character that, could only belong to her. Your evocation of that scene is so perfectly what I had in my mind, where I, I'm, because I'm empathizing with you, the experience of like, okay, what's going to come out of it? And then when those words come out of her mouth, it, like, it's just like this holy shit moment where it's, it's, <laughs> it's almost like a hawk killing a squirrel. And, 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 it, and it's perfectly kind of, I think it speaks to the like, you know, what Janet Malcolm, you know, sometimes referred to as like the predatorial nature of journalism, but like, mm -hmm. that's the writer's job. Like you that's have to nab that. And as a filmmaker, you as a director, it's doing that exact same thing that she was doing in capturing her and the, and the, and the kind of like resonance of that, of aligning, um, subject and story. It, it's like the entire movie is in that moment. When I showed it, to her, showed the, the entire film, um, which was the second most nervous thing I've done. I'm sure. Because she's, she's ferocious, right? I mean, she, you must have been going in with like, you know, your, your heart in your throat being like, what is the reaction going to be here? Yeah. And, and, and very unjournalistically. Uh, and uh, I, I, I actually thought, you know, if she hates it and thinks it's a piece of shit, uh, I'm, I'm going to I'm not going to release it. I'm going to give the money back, I, I, but I'm not going to do it. Um, and we could talk about what it's like, you know, being a family member, having to ask difficult questions of, of, of someone you love. But, um, uh, but I was, um, so I, I, I brought over a laptop uh, to her apartment and 
the cut at that time, which I was not going to turn in of this length, but it was like three hours. Uh, I knew I was going to make some cuts, but I wanted to show it to her first, which is very also unorthodox for most documentarians, um, to see what her reaction would be. So, so I wouldn't have any surprises. And uh, so I went over there and I had the laptop and I had two little speakers that I'd plugged in. I told her, you know, I had a pad and I said, um, all right, it's three hours long. It's not going to be this long. There's time code here. When you have a question or a concern or something, we'll keep the movie running. Um, and I'll just write down the time code and we'll go back. She goes, okay, okay, just start the movie. I'm like, yeah, and also I want to stop at an hour and a half. You know, you can have a bathroom break and we'll, okay, fine. Just start the movie. So, <laughs> uh, so I start the movie and um, it was one of, personally, it was a, a very powerful moment for me to see her watch her, um, to see her, her reaction to seeing people talking about her to 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 see all the work that she presumed correctly went into it from so many people and to see her life depicted at these pivotal moments um and uh, she was mesmerized and uh at an hour and a half you know i hit the the bar to stop she goes what, what are you doing I said, we can take a bathroom. No, no, go, go, go on, Jesus. So, uh, you know, when it was over, you know, I mean, she cried. Uh, and uh, she turned to me and, you know, she just said, I, thank you. Um, we both had a bit of a cry then. And, uh, wow. and I was on my way. Um, it's the only screening that ever really mattered, right? In, in, a, oh, in a fundamental a sense. Jesus Christ, yeah. Because, like, the, you know, you as a filmmaker are taking this great gamble in the sense of it's somebody you love, it's somebody who is an icon, it's somebody who has had an incredibly complex life, and you are, and she's also sort of, it seems to me, you, you tell me if I'm wrong, but kind of carefully curated her image uh, over the years, and suddenly right. it's completely in your hands. Yes. And this is the thing, and I'm sure she's acutely aware, where everybody's going to go, who the hell was Joan Didion, you know, in, in, in movie form, like, this is it. And, and it's... um. It's a tremendous burden and or not burden, but responsibility, I guess. Oh, it's a huge responsibility. I was she gave me her legacy, and um, and and beyond showing it to her, I would be showing it to people who have very strong, definite opinions and impressions uh, about this this person. So if I got it wrong, uh, you never expect to please everyone, but um, I thought if I just got if I just showed people as close as they're going to get to what she's like, because everyone's quite curious about, they have this, you know, uh, we almost picture with a, you know, death face walking around with a sickle um, mm -hmm. and consider mm -hmm. her very gloomy and which was certainly never my impression. And I wanted to get that across, um, you know, her sense of humor. I, I, I heard her laugh far more times than I've ever seen her gloomy. Uh, and she and John were 
laughed all the time. And they, they both had a great, wicked sense of humor. Um, so I just, I just followed the character, the character that I knew. Um, and, you know, hoped that would, uh, you know, appease, inspire um, people who, you know, thought they knew everything about Joan and people who knew nothing about Joan and then went to a bookstore right afterwards to read her. Well, it's a, that's a fascinating thing about this movie is you can come to it as a rabid fan who's read every word she's ever written and it's satisfying. Or you can come to it as somebody who's 20 years old, has heard this name, but never actually engaged with the work. And the first thing you're going to do is go sprinting to the bookstore to buy every goddamn book she ever published. And that's, that's, that's hard to navigate that line between speaking yeah. to both audiences. Well, well, one of my prouder moments was to see her uh, her book shoot back up, and the sales were amazing, and the reissues. And you know, when I went to um, her memorial, that was uh, over a year after her after her death. I'm on a subway going up to the cathedral, um, 116th Street, and on the car in the car were maybe eight to 10 college girls, but more look like freshmen, all dressed in black, all carrying tote bags with Joan's picture on it. And they were going to the funeral at the memorial. Um, and it was a very arresting image that I didn't have the president of mind to take a picture of. It's exactly the thing she would have put it. it she would have put in a book too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, can I finish with one question, which is um, the interview with David Hare, I thought was so um, extraordinary. And so uh, a, I'm a fan of him. I mean, his work is yeah. just absolutely brilliant. But I thought the intimacy and love that mm. you um, were able to capture from him toward her and, and the kind of genuine emotion of that relationship. Like talk about kind of talk about him, talk about the approach to that interview and how you are um, bottling that for the movie. Cause I thought it was just, I thought it was brilliant. Well, I, I, I that's another thing where I thought I, I, I thank you, David, for just being so for sharing your feelings and sharing the details um, of, of, of all the voices of the interviews, for some reason, his s continues to ring. It pops up out of nowhere. I, I'll be in a supermarket and I'll look at a, you know, a shopping aisle and I'll go, and I fed her. <laughs> it was amazing. It was an amazing interview. He was so, uh, I, I, I don't think he's ever, I don't think he's ever, talked on camera given interviews like that so it seemed bottled up in him mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he noticed something that i noticed um when i was making the short film uh, about blue nights was no matter the subject she loves the process she loves she's there at rehearsals every day watching vanessa redgrave talk about her her, her Joan's husband dropping dead and she's making notes. It's not unlike the, the, the child on acid. 
mm-hmm, the dichotomy mm-hmm. of the two. Still, st- still seeing, still kind of acutely observing, and yes, yeah. as as the process of creativity of of telling the best story in the best way, and and it really, uh, as David describes, it really it really lifted her. Um, I think it, as he I, he is not exaggerating when he says it saved her. And you know the his other reaction when he gets quite choked up about being being told, you know, by Joan telling him I, I would never have written this book if it wasn't for you. You know, he that's because he had to do what I also had to do in the doc was make her make her talk about really devastating things. Even if she's written about it, if you love someone, you know, you do feel like a bit of a scavenger. Yeah, you're pushing them back to the edge of the cliff to stare back yes. into the abyss. And yeah. And it's it, it's it's interesting as a filmmaker because you're aware that you are in some sense touching and playing with trauma, but mm-hmm. it's necessary to sort of transmit that to an audience. And not only that, Joan would have been so disappointed, and maybe even to the point of disgust, if I called myself a filmmaker and didn't make her go there, because mm-hmm. she would do that with whoever she was talking to. Um, you know, and so. She looked at this as my job as a journalist and 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 her job as the subject. Um, so not that that made it easier, but um, you know, I was very close I, I, with John and Quintana. It was you know, it was it was uh, it was a difficult section. Well, you, 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 nav- you navigated it beautifully and, and, and it, uh, you know, it's, it's such a, I think that, you know, the trick with these things is you want to make something that's timely, that catches the zeitgeist that everybody's talking about, but you're also trying to make something timeless so that 25 years from now, you want to know, you know, who Joan Didion was and what she yeah. was like, like it's something that's lasting and, and, and you did that, um, Thank you. in, in, in a powerful well. and beautiful way. And, and, and I'm, as a fan, uh, of both of you, I'm, I'm grateful that you put it into the world. Thank you. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you for being out there, man. You're making the world a better place. Well, thank you so much. All right, Griffin, take care. All right, my man. Talk to you later. Thank you to Griffin Dunn for his loving film and for sharing his time and insights about his iconic aunt. See you next time on The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production. Executive producers are Tiller and Fitz. Our producer is Jacob Miller. Music by Zydepunk. The show is executive produced and distributed by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler for Double Elvis Productions. Thanks for listening, and please, don't forget to subscribe.